This is an ABC podcast. G'day and welcome to Country Breakfast. My name's Clint Jasper. This morning, we'll hear from farmers who are getting serious about going all in on renewable energy. From making hydrogen from straw to using solar-powered batteries to run irrigation systems and dairies. The interesting impl- implications for the agricultural sector is that as our group keeps growing, and it is growing, then we stop being a microgrid, we start being a community generator of electricity. Some exciting plans for the future coming up, but let's turn to the present with Rural News of the Week. Serena, good morning. Good morning to you, Clint. The federal government has allowed a major fertiliser plant to go ahead in WA's north, but the construction has upset some traditional owners. Yeah, and as we know, there is a global shortage of nitrogen fertilisers and they're very expensive as well. And so this $4.5 billion urea plant on the Burrup Peninsula in the Pilbara is a big deal. The Environment Minister, Tanya Plebisek, said she wouldn't block the project because it is backed by the Murujuga Aboriginal Corporation, but there were others who opposed it and asked her to intervene. Now, the plant will require heritage sites to be moved. These are ancient rock art depicting animals and so on. Multinational group Perdaman wants to convert gas into urea fertiliser. Perdaman chairman Vikas Rambal says work can begin by the end of October. Whichever way it was supposed to go, it was informed decision, which I'm very pleased with the process she followed. This gives us a certainty. It gives us my banks, my finances, who are very, very nervous. It just stimulates the process that manufacturing can happen in this country. There has been quite a lot of blowback from that decision to allow the development to go ahead. So I'm sure we'll hear more about that in the future. But the job summit is coming up and the food industry is bursting to get some solutions happening. Yeah, so the food distributors and manufacturers say they need to fill around 172,000 jobs. The industry says it should be prioritised. Richard Forbes is the CEO of Independent Food Distributors Australia. He'll present the case to the Jobs and Skills Summit next week. He says the long-term shortage could impact food security and will only be solved by having more migrants, higher wages, increased manufacturing to get more local workers interested. To be perfectly frank, there's such a plethora of jobs on offer at the moment that, that people can pick and choose. Um, and that means that you know they may not choose working in an abattoir or a meat processing plant or a fish processing plant. We've got a chronic shortage of truck drivers to distribute food around Australia at the moment. We've heard a lot over the past couple of years about things like right to repair and concerns about data privacy in farm machinery, but an Australian hacker has showed just how simple it would be to get through John Deere's security by hacking in and playing a video game on the tractor's computer console. What was the message behind that? Yeah, so this is Hacker Sick. He installed the video game Doom on the John Deere tractor recently. He was trying to demonstrate just how easy it is to break the security codes. Now, look, that may seem like a funny prank to farmers and gamers, but for cybersecurity experts, yeah, that hack has confirmed the fears about how vulnerable food supply is. Now, Palo Alto Network's Asia-Pacific Chief Security Officer, Sean Duca, says it shows you can't overlook any computer security, even farm equipment. There's no sector that's sort of, that's going to be left sort of unscathed because everything is up for grabs. 
And when it comes to a cyber criminal, when it comes to a nation state, they cast their net as far and wide as they possibly can to try and get access to as many systems as they can. These devices, more and more are coming out. They're going to be incident enabled, which means that you'll be able to sit in your lounge room and effectively watch and see what's going on. And if you can do it from your lounge room, and that means that many other people will be able to access and see what's going on from their own lounge rooms too. And, and Clint, I've got a you know a, a Google um, device that I say, yeah, mm. play me the radio, give me a, an alarm on my eggs boiling. I don't want it doing anything but that. And uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, the, especially in machines like John Deere and stuff, they're collecting real time data about crop yields and um, how much farmers are actually growing in that moment. Which is always in the past, the concern has been sharing that data with market traders and you know get, getting them advanced information about what the crop yield will actually be so they can make better trades yeah so for financial issues mm. for food security yes it is a a major issue that cyber security well farmers need to become cyber experts do they <laughs> another string to the bow <laughs> yeah that's right Scientists are working on the first synthetic vaccines for foot and mouth disease and lumpy skin disease two of the big ones at the moment yeah, and we are very worried about foot and mouth and lumpy skin diseases, which are on our doorstep in Indonesia. But the problem is with the current vaccines, if we start preemptively vaccinating our livestock, as, as you have um, done this report, it will be impossible to tell if the animal has the disease or just been vaccinated. Now, National Coordinator for Exotic Disease Preparedness, Dr Chris Parker, says these new synthetic vaccines will be using technology of mRNA vaccines, which were developed for COVID. There's been work around the world on this um, and there's been uh, a number of uh, people, including the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which has been do doing work on lumpy skin disease vaccines. Um, the Canadians have been doing work, so but it's the first time uh, that we in Australia have been pursuing uh, this work for livestock vaccines. I remember when I spoke with uh, Vilna Vosloo from the CSIRO, he's the head of animal disease preparedness, and I asked her what some of the most exciting research or, you know, future frontiers in uh, foot and mouth disease were, and she specifically yeah. mentioned those mRNA vaccines. Yeah, and the breakthrough for COVID means so much more than just human diseases. So, yeah, it is um, a bright light on the horizon, I think. Farmers are more and more using pain relief when operating on their young livestock, but they'll soon have easier access to it. Yeah, so we're talking here about local anaesthetics, the oral pain relief, numbacane and buccalgesic, and they're used during castration, tail docking and mulesing procedures on lambs. Now, one of the anaesthetic is called numbnuts. <laughs> I love that name. Now, in an interim decision published by the Therapeutic Goods Administration uh, a week ago would mean that uh, these products could be sold at rural stores instead of only buying them through veterinary clinics. And the Australian Veterinary Association says it plans to appeal a TGA decision. So, you know, they worry about misuse and we'll hear from mm -hmm. them in a minute. But Steve Harrison, the president of the Victorian Farmers Federation Livestock Group, says this decision is good news for livestock producers. Yeah, look, I think it's um, an encouraging decision and it gives, you know, um, producers that choice. And, you know, going back um, five, ten years ago, we only had uh, potentially one uh, pain relief product, whereas now we've got three or four different products. I can imagine anything widely available with the suffix okane would be a concern in itself. But for this issue, is it similar to the way doctors are unhappy about pharmacists taking on more of their jobs? 
Yes, a little bit because of, you know, the other misuse of these um, drugs. Now, the Australian Veterinary Association is disappointed by the reclassification of the active constituents in pain relief products, Namakane and Buckelgesic. Now, Dr. Susan Swaney is the president of the Sheep, Camelot and Goat Veterinarians, and she says it requires some understanding of how drugs work because there is potential for toxicity and for some uh, posterior paresis in, in lambs that are treated with numb nuts. And also um, the, the shortness of action is probably not adequate for numb nuts to be used alone. And there's good indications that it should be used in combination with other products. And I think veterinarians are best positioned to explain those details and to ensure that farmers are using the best possible treatments. There's been a change of the guard at our airports, specifically with sniffer dogs working to detect food and pests in people's luggage. Yeah, so Australian Border Force is on the hunt for some special workers to sniff out pests and diseases, um, you know, the disease of foot and mouth that we discussed. Detected dogs have been used on the front line for 30 years and they've become a really critical part of biosecurity detection. And recently, um, the first dog to discover brown marmorated stink bug, known as BMSB for short, Velvet, has gone into retirement and a new graduate, Finley, is joining the ranks. So Assistant Director of Detection Capability with the Department of Agriculture, Jeff Smith, says the return of international travel detected dog teams around the country are ready to meet the increased demand for screening. And Finlay is going really well. Finlay's going great guns. So he's only been in the field a little while. He's already got, I think, well over 300 live seizures. And he's, you know, predominantly it's, it's finding seeds, fresh plant material, meat and meat products. So all things that are a relatively high risk in terms of potential to bring a pest or disease into the country. We're currently running quite a large national recruitment exercise for detected dog handlers. And of course, we'll be training dogs up for all of those handlers. And on this topic, there was a pretty important discovery at the airport this week. Yes, the capra beetle was detected at Sydney Airport. It's the number one pest for grains, rice and nuts. Now, capra beetle larvae get into the grain and make it inedible. And capra, they say, is spreading around the world, it's becoming a bigger pest. Now, biosecurity officers found a live capra beetle in a bag of cardamom pods being brought in from India. But Department of Agriculture's biosecurity spokeswoman, Monica Collins, says they have increased the efforts to detect the pest and this appears to be paying off. This was somebody coming off a um, plane and they had actually declared that they had the cardamom seeds, which is a good thing. Once we'd found the live capra beetle, samples were then um, identified by one of our entomologists as actually a capra beetle. And the three bags of cardamom seeds that they had had to be destroyed by biosecurity officers. I love cardamom. I love it in, mm. um, you know, <laughs> milk drinks and tea, but I don't want capra beetle in it. Ugh. Absolutely not. Finally today, Australian farmers who deal with a dry and variable climate developed no-till cropping. Now there's a no-kill approach and it's taken out the National Land Care Awards. Yes, and just a, a bit of history on land care. It was developed by the then PM Bob Hawke the National Farmers Federation's Rick Farley and Australian Conservation Foundation Philip Toyne. It was a unique combination and it's, um, it's gone around the world as a, as a way to um, conserve our environment, improve soils. And 
This prestigious Bob Hawke Award this year has been awarded to a New South Wales farmer, Bruce Maynard. He received a whopping $50,000 for this effort. Um, now, Bruce has been an innovator in stock handling and he's planted more than 200,000 trees at Narromine and lots of salt bush on his farm. And he's implemented, as you mentioned, no-kill approach to land management and vegetation. Right, that's one of our developments and no-kill cropping produces crops within grasslands without simplifying them. So it's one way, it's not the only way of course, uh, but it is one way of producing grain where we don't have to get rid of uh, the whole biodiversity uh, in order to produce something that we need as humans. And congratulations to Bruce Maynard of Narromine. It is amazing when you listen overseas to the stages they're at in, uh, you know, transforming their farming systems. No-till is kind of the first step on the ladder and it's something that Australian farmers, grain growers specifically, do as par for the course. Yes, well, I visited East Timor several years back and they're trying to adopt land care principles as well because, you know, they have a long period of dry, but then the monsoon just tears apart the landscape mm. and, and soil erosion is very big. So, you know, by um, managing the landscape so that you hold the soil in place when uh, the big storms come, you know, that's all land care principles and it's doing a really good job. Some good old Aussie innovation. Yeah. Serena Locke, thank you so much for that wrap of Rural News this week. Yeah, my pleasure, Clint. ABCRN connects curious people with interesting ideas. Whether you're looking for the complex to be explained in a way that just makes sense. Or you want to get caught up in colourful conversations about the latest in arts or pop culture or current affairs. Or maybe you want to dive deep into a podcast about some random obscure thing that has become the new obsession. Switch on ABCRN anytime. We're here for your curiosity. ABCRN. Think bigger. This week we're visiting a medieval-style castle complete with turrets and battlements. It's perched on top of a hill in rural Tasmania and is the dream home of a self-confessed history buff. We'll hear how a farmer's search for the right type of cattle to tread lightly on the land led him to a breed used by Zulu tribes in Africa, and we'll meet a woman who's bringing a taste of her Taiwanese home to a small farming community in the South Australian Mallee. And the locals are delighted to have a dining option other than the pub or bakery. The locals really, 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 really support me. I think before I opened Demi's Kitchen, I don't really know about town people because we just go to work and go home and go to work and go home. And since I opened Demi's Kitchen because I like to chat with people, so I know more about the family and the people and more business around town. Feeding her town and getting to know its people, that story is coming up. First today, though, we're heading to a country footy match in northern Victoria. Sporting clubs like the local football and netball teams are often the heart and soul of rural communities, and it's been the case in the tiny town of Quambatook for more than a century. But as Jeremy Story Carter explains, it's an era that's drawing to a close. It's the final home and away game for the Quambatook Football and Netball Club, and emotions in the farming town are high. 
We've fought for a long time to keep going and we are very proud of this club, you know. Kelly Burmester used to ride her bike 17 kilometres to get to netball practice. For 30 years, she's pulled on the red, white and black of her beloved Quambatook Saints. Now, after more than a century, the club is folding. It's heartbreaking, so it worries me not having a, a club in the town anymore. But the reality is we're not the only club in this situation. There's a specialness to a place like this. What do you think we stand to lose from losing clubs like this? Oh, there's definitely a specialness um, in places like this. You know, the, your football and netball club is your heart of your town. So it was a tough decision to make. I mean, the majority of members, volunteers, players, they live a minimum of 50 kilometres away from here. And the reality is when the club folds, how often am I going to come back to Quamby? Quambatook is shrinking. The local school closed five years ago and the town no longer has enough young people to sustain the club, nor the parents who live locally to fill crucial volunteer roles. It's a far cry from when famed country musician John Williamson grew up in the town's heyday. I think I'm very lucky to, to be brought... When the town was probably at its peak, it means a huge amount to me. It was a be- beautiful little town to be brought up in as a, as a boy. The Mallee Boy singer retains a great sense of pride at having represented the local footy team. The sad thing about it more than anything is, uh, you know, I think the football teams pull the towns together, you know. like For me to, to become a part of the football team was uh, was joining the legends that I knew as a kid, you know what I mean? It's really important. Footy clubs around the country have suffered during the pandemic, but Quambatook's problems run deeper. In the past 10 years, the town has lost 130 people and now has an ageing population of little more than 200. Over in the Quambatook General Store, Shelley of Spain seems to know just about every one of them. John! Hello there. After going to school here and returning later in life to run the shop, She's witnessed the changes. Back in the day when we had 160 kids at the school, there were houses everywhere. So we've gone from all those little farmlets to great big farms that are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and don't need the workers because the machinery is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So we've, we've lost not just the small farms, but we've lost the workers on the bigger farms as well. Less workers means uh, fewer families. It certainly has effect, uh, a knock-on effect to the small towns um, because we're losing those workers that perhaps would have shopped in town, their kids went to school in town, their kids played sport in town. So, yeah, not, I'm not blaming the farmers for getting bigger. Um, that's the, the, the way of the world. But um, it certainly has a knock-on effect of, of, the, of the town. Club legend Malcolm Knight remembers a Quambatook with multiple banks, pubs and government offices. Employees from those businesses would then double as volunteers in the football and netball club. It takes a lot to run a football club, but when you've got that many people around, you have, have a lot of fun. We've got 65-year-old people running water and things like that, so just we haven't got the young people in the club. Back at the footy ground, young club president Rhys Carmichael is preparing to take the field for the seniors with a heavy heart. It is quite upsetting because we've all put a lot into this football club and sort of the, the older blokes that are in the town, this, a lot of them come here to you know, have a few beers on a Thursday night and catch up and 
you know, filling their days, doing a few little odd jobs around. I think it'll it'll hurt them a lot more than probably what it'll hurt the younger blokes. And as someone who is younger, do you think we stand to lose something if these smaller towns and particularly these smaller footy clubs don't? There's not really a lane for them to exist. Yeah, definitely. I am a bit worried about the future. I don't. I think football clubs are going to find it harder and harder to go on into the future, um, especially those that are, you know, you're half an hour out of town because that that makes a difference. Um, yeah, I am nervous for the clubs that are just that little bit too far out. Cheered on by a loving crowd, the seniors footy team overwhelms their country opponents to record a dominant win. Tears are shed and mates are hugged at the final siren. And with the prospect of an unlikely premiership still alive, there are at least another few memories to be made yet. My name is Shannon Dracon. Welcome to my castle. Dracon is a, a word for dragon, isn't it? Yeah, it's ancient Greek for a dragon. Real name? Well, I, I did have one, yes. Smith? <laughs> sure. On top of a hill in the northwest Tasmanian town of Burnie, this self-named dragon has built himself a fitting home and realised a long-time dream of living in a castle. Now I can die happy. My brother had a wedding in Ireland and he hired out a castle in the early 2000s. Always wanted to stay in a castle, so I ticked that dream. Next uh, box was pretty much to own a castle. I built one. I suppose you can say I'm a lounge chair history buff and I'm not a cookie-cutter person. I rounded a corner way down there and I saw it immediately on the hill and it was very striking, a castle <laughs> on the hill. You must be getting a lot of attention. Certainly, but ultimately I was just surprised that this hill was vacant for so long and it's beautiful views everywhere. Ocean views, mountains. I would have loved to have had a river, but a uh, hill was the next best thing. G'day, I'm Rick Eaves. I'm taking a look through this impressive medieval looking structure that Shannon Draken has named Dragon's Roost. I had the castle design ready to go, and then I just had to find the right place to build it. I'm not from Tasmania, but I love it here. And you came here to pursue this dream? Yeah, the land here was ideal. Turns out that the people here are, are really great. What I saved in the cost of the land buying in Tassie, I spent in construction. Because I've built in New South Wales, Queensland, I've owned property in the NT as well. You said you had the castle design ready. Is it based on something particular in literature or history? No, or? no. more like a medieval aesthetic European castle. Where did you find those bricks? Well, they're made in Melbourne. And uh, how'd you go finding a bricklayer? Because they're thin on the ground, really. Oh, that was up to the builder. Uh, I couldn't be happier with my builder. It was important to tap into the local resources that I could. So what are the specs? Well, I've got four towers. Ended up with square. It's just more functional. A lot of modern internal structure, but with a few theme rooms. Dungeon? Unfortunately, no. I oh, would great have. Great to have a dungeon. I had to cut costs. If you've got four towers, do you have to employ four sentries? Or do you just do a lot of running up and down stairs when you need to check on things? Well, I was hoping to build some trebuchets. I don't think the local council probably uh, would be appreciative <laughs> of uh, siege machines. So which are the trebuchets? Uh, like a catapult. Yeah, you can still keep buckets of hot tar or whatever it was they like to pour on the uh, scaling well, forces. I'm not expecting any sieges, but I'm prepared. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Could we have a look through? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. I can show you the bailey courtyard. So you, you enter through a beautiful arch. Well, this is the main keep. 
And the only doors of egress are in here. Well, I guess a defensible position. Uh, the, I'm loving the language. This archway is uh, equivalent to one you'll see between the main keep and the kitchen as well. Looking for like a bit of a zen garden type thing, maybe a little water feature. Do have a lot of plans for the outside, help support local wildlife. It's a beautiful big door. Oh yeah, iron reinforced. Walk through pantry. So you usually find like pheasants and uh, whatever the hunters have brought in. <laughs> Oh, bit of peak. Yeah. <laughs> Very authentic medieval microwave there. Yeah, have to have um, live in the 21st century. <laughs> Into the main keep where there's a bit of an echo where I don't have as much furniture at the moment. It's almost like a lobby in a hotel, I guess. I suppose you could say that. Yeah. Uh, especially with the mezzanine. Tell me a bit more about your obsession with things medieval and does fantasy come into that? Like fantasy oh, literature and Lord of the Rings? Definitely and... a big fan of fantasy yeah. uh, and sci-fi. Is there one for you that's like the, the greatest of all time, the most oh, affecting really. for you? No. There's, there's a lot. Like the genre, sword and sorcery be more my favourite, pretty much living in my, my fantasy. What do you do, by the way? Uh, I was in the military for 20 years and currently doing full-time study at uh, UTAS. So almost finished uh, an associate degree, design technology. Games room. Oh, it's the games room. With a uh, gaming table. With an impressive table. Yeah, from uh, the US. It was a Kickstarter project. They shoot that idea out to the world and then people fund that project. Their role was uh, making purpose-built game tables. This one has power. USBs and everything built yeah, into the Yeah, absolutely. As a nice function, it lifts up to a gaming um, platform underneath. So these panels come out and you've got a plain matte surface underneath. Any sort of board games, tabletop games, role-playing oh, games. Some uh, really nice decoration around yep. here. Dragons which is, which and is, dragon fire. And... Which is replaceable. So I can put different motifs. To suit the theme of yeah, the night. Yeah, exactly. Like You've got a lot of figurines over there. Yeah. It's <laughs> another hobby of mine I paint. There is tabletop war games, sci-fi with Star Wars, fantasy, to more common things which people will probably know as Warhammer. And is there a community of people here who yeah. are into this? Yeah. There's actually um, clubs. There's also role-playing as well, so Dungeons & Dragons. What is that core appeal to... To me? Yeah, to those kind of fantasies, you know, playing for your life against, uh, uh, you know, dark I, forces. I like to escape to a fantasy world where there's magic or something which is not the current mundane world that we're living in now. So given that you've got a castle now, you've actually got a castle, yeah. do you need to consider giving yourself a title? <laughs> uh, that's not how titles work uh, anymore. It is if least. you're the only one with a castle, you can make up the rules here. I'll be asking for taxes from everyone, you know, for five miles around. Oh, the council would love that. Nah, that's, that's a bit of a jerk move. I didn't do it. I didn't didn't do it for ego. Yeah. I do want a water feature, maybe a, a footbridge going over that. So by water feature, you mean moat or? We'll say a pond. At the front door, maybe? Or uh, just drawbridge? In front of the front door. Yeah. Um, yeah. I do plan on doing a little bit more to this. Can we have a look at a tower? Yeah, we'll go upstairs. Oh, awesome. Too soon for ghosts, isn't it? There have been no ghosts. <laughs> Love it. So you can stand there and sort of peep through the turrets. Yeah. You really do look over the kingdom from here, don't you? Mm. Even a bit of the wharf. Oh, yeah. Pretty amazing. This was just a hill overgrown with blackberries and maintained by a really kind cattle farmer. Murray's done a really great job to clean this place up prior to me moving here. Clouds are really closing in around the dragon's roost. Great cloak weather and we should totally bring back cloaks. Don't know if I can just walk around town with them but definitely keen on just wearing them in the castle for sure. 
I guess John Snow was making cloaks look pretty good there a couple of years ago, wasn't he? Well, that's it. I mean, I had a friend of mine actually make a cloak that resembled a John Snow cloak. So I had the linen cloth complete with wolf fur around the shoulders. Uh, it wasn't genuine wolf. Good. Uh, it was fake wolf. Really nice and warm. Shannon Draken, who built his very own modern medieval-style castle on a hilltop in Burnie in northwest Tasmania. He gave our reporter Rick Eves a look around, and you can see it too. There's photos and a video on the RN homepage. Head online and look for Country Breakfast under the Programs tab. You're listening to Country Breakfast on RN. My name's Clint Jasper. Still to come, we'll hear of a farmer's efforts to regenerate the land and improve the soil while still running cattle. And we'll visit a town in the South Australian Mallee where residents are getting to try food that's a bit different to their normal pub or bakery fare. In a church hall in a small farming town in the South Australian Mallee, these young people are having a go at making their own sushi rolls. I have to spread it. I'm trying to spread out the rice and then I'm going to start putting on the ingredients after. So I'm up to the first stage. Chicken? Chicken? Yes. Until recently, food options were pretty limited here in Pinaroo, a farming community close to the Victorian border. The only food outlets in town were the two pubs and a bakery. But these days, it's different. With takeaway sushi and other Asian meals, popular choices among these locals. Yeah, so being able to um, get sushi and some different food here in the Mallee is um, yeah, definitely good, hence why we go every week. So use your finger. Hello, I'm Eliza Burlage, and I've come along to this workshop where participants are getting hands-on experience making sushi rolls. Try to praise a little bit. Make your the end of the seaweed attach the rice so they can stay together. They're being taught by Yuan Sai, known in her new hometown as Demi. That's it. That's sushi. Sushi! <laughs> Since she arrived in Australia as a backpacker from Taiwan, Demi has worked in a range of jobs. First job is was a nanny in Sydney and after three months I have to go to uh, do a farm job because I need to collect my um, second year visa. So I travel around Victoria to find a job can get good money because I want to save money. Save enough money, go back to my country, open my own shop. Then I met my husband. Then we end up in Pinaru. Many beautiful things happen. It was here in this tight-knit community of Pinaru that Demi realised her long-time dream. Opening Demi's Kitchen, a food van selling Asian and Australian-style takeaway foods. And I selling some dumplings and my hometown style chicken, salt and pepper chicken, and some fish and chips. People like it. The inspiration for the food van came to Demi while she was working in a local vegetable packing shed. And one day when I work in that onion shed, I pick the onions. You know, when you your hand is working, but your brain's thinking other things. Is the um, factory worker <laughs> always do. <laughs> so I was thinking, 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 why cannot I just start? So one day I decided just go to see the lady who owned my food van before. I want to ask her, where did you buy the food van? I want to get one. And she asked me, who want, who want buy one? I say, me. And she, she say, I want to sell. And I say, I want to buy. And she say, oh, 
and how much you want, and I said how much you want to sell. <laughs> and she said twenty five thousand. I said, and、uh, I just go home and think about it. And was it difficult to to、uh, purchase the van and get all the permits and everything involved to to open Demi's Kitchen? I think the hardest part is your brave. You need to brave enough, be brave, and you have to、um, trust yourself. Stay, you you can do it. Since opening the food van, Demi has received a strong following of repeat customers among this tight knit community. My customer, the locals, really, 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 really support me. Every time when the traveler go through, and because the traveler traveling time is almost always the the public holiday or the school holiday, so. Of course, the local is going away. So when sometimes have some traveler always ask me how's the business going, is that it, it feel like my business is not going well? But <laughs> but my business is going really really well because the local really support me. You can see every customer. It's not just opening hours from ten to eight. It including you have to get all the stock and ready all the stock and because I made my own dumplings, so you have to spend more time to make. Dumplings and the chicken, and yeah, you have to organize your time well, or you just keep walking and working and working. <laughs> Feeding her town has given Demi an opportunity to get to know and appreciate Pinaru and its people. I think before I opened Demi's Kitchen, I don't really know about town people because we just go to work and go home and go to work and go home. And since I opened Demi's Kitchen, because I like to chat with people, so I. Know more about the family and the people, and more business around town. So we're looking at Inguni Cross cattle at the moment. Like we want to go to a fairly high Inguni content. How do you spell that? N G U N I. They've had thousands of years of history. Zulu. Tribe cattle. On his family's farm in the Noosa hinterland on Queensland's Sunshine Coast, Brian Usher has found just the right breed of cattle to suit this land. After a long search, when we came here, I came with the years and years of being a trader, so I buy, put a bit of weight on, sell. Well, in this country here, which is particularly moist and highly parasitic, we really struggled to get animals that were right for the climate. So we're forever having to treat animals, and not what we like to do. We're trying to get to be a lot cleaner, greener, and eliminate chemical use. So we searched and found a breed called Nguni. They are parasite resistant, so the ticks do not bother them, and probably not worms either. If you see the condition of the cattle in, you know, in a very moist environment, and a little bit smaller animals, so they're good in the hills and good on poor quality feed. Even though we're really green and lush, our proteins aren't high here on the coastal country. But they do really well, exceptionally well. Hello, I'm Jennifer Nichols. I'm here with Brian at this property in the picturesque hills of Kinkin, where he and his wife Susie are embracing regenerative farming. When we came here at the end of 2018, take over the farm full time ourselves, we effectively did a completely new rebuild on everything. So we put a water system in, we put fences in, we built a whole new set of yards. We built them with the thought that we might be 80 when we're still running the joint, so they're all air operated and up to date, modern set of yards. Very impressive. We've just come up the road a little bit, and you've got an off-stream watering point here. Yeah, well, water infrastructure was probably our first thing we did. Through all my、um, time with the regenerative ag, realised you can do a lot by having water in the right place. So this is what you would call a cell centre. 
and it's a trough which is fed from a tank that's on the top of the hill, gravity fed, and it services six paddocks. So effectively we can just open up any one of the six paddocks to come to this one water and it cuts down your overall infrastructure build cost. So it's got posts and between each of those is electric fencing and you can just open the cell that you want to let the animals into. Correct, yeah. I've just used white electrical tape, homemade handles, so they're nice and cheap. You just open up the paddock that the animals are actually in at the time and we keep all our animals in one mob, effectively only maintaining and making sure they've got one water at any one time. So management's a lot simpler when you get fully set up for regenerative style farming. We use the animals as the engine to fix up and help the environment. It's transforming really, really quickly. We're very pleased. Brian Usher, there are people who are very concerned that animals damage the land. How are you saying that they actually help it? It's management. Yes, an animal can damage the land. If it's left there in the same spot and continually grazes what it likes, it will continually wipe out that plant. You get more plant action through having an animal graze it and then you move it on so that you get recovery. So the system's most powerful part is the recovery. The animal action, hey, they're a microbial factory walking around, so they're putting manure and urine on the ground and that activates the biology in the soils and the plants. So you let them graze what you want and get them off for recovery. So recovery is probably the most important part of the management system. And I tell you, they can do it without me having to be chasing around trying to change something with a tractor or a bit of fertiliser or something else. It's amazing the change, used in the right way. So it's management. Have you sectioned off your paddocks so that you're rotating them through? Yeah, I call it time-controlled grazing. We've got 27 paddocks looking to go to 35. And that allows us time for the recovery. And how much land do you have here? 400 acres. But yeah, we work them through those 27 paddocks and pretty much they move every day to a fresh feed. The biggest one I've got is about six hectares. The one they were in yesterday was only two and a half. They can do quite considerable amount of change in 24 hours. A, they trample it down. B, they chew the tops out of you know a lot of the grass. So when they walk out, there's still a huge amount of body of feed there. In this really wet time, you see and you think, oh, they're damaging it. But the recovery afterwards is phenomenal. And by the time they're back to that paddock, you wouldn't know they were there. And that's the brilliant part about how we do it. And I just showed, showed you, Jennifer, one that they'll be going into tomorrow, which is beautiful, lush, dark green, at least two foot tall. And they get totally fresh feed tomorrow. Or well, it starts this afternoon. I do my moves at about 430 which has a bit of um, animal psychology in it because they're resting now and they'll rest until about 3.30, 4 o'clock. Then they'll get up and when they get up, the calves come looking for them to have a feed and at that point, I like to be able to move them. So I, I move everything together. If you wait a bit longer, calves will go in a different direction. Mothers start grazing again. If you go too early, you've got to try and actually stir them off their rest and that uh, doesn't easily happen. We've just gone through a paddock where they've really flattened it so then you rest it for a month. What have you noticed in terms of the weeds? I don't focus on the weed, <laughs> but when you do observe, a lot of the common weeds from overgrazed country where the people don't move their animals around, they dissipate, they disappear. 
cotton bush is one, milk thistle, a little bit less tobacco bush. Um, it comes down to the health of the soil will normally grow a plant that's relevant. So if you're bare and you've taken away your topsoil and got no organic matter, then you'll grow succession plants that have got a deep root, they're probably prickly and they're probably not edible, and that's what nature's trying to repair by using those plants. Once you get more health into your soil, biology's working well, you grow grasses and strong grasses and so they tend to outgrow the less desirable ones. So we're getting there. (laughs) Brian Usher, he was explaining his regenerative farming system in the Sunshine Coast hinterland to our reporter Jen Nichols. Before that, Eliza Burledge visited Pinaroo where Demi's Kitchen Food Van has a strong following among the locals. You can read more on that story and all of the stories on today's program. Just hit up the RN homepage and look for Country Breakfast under the Programs tab. Jeremy Story Carter's photos and words about the Quambatook Footy Club are truly a work of art, so please go check that out. Lend us your ears and experience a world of audio content with ABC Listen. A world of sound. Like Expanse Pink Diamond Heist. How millions of dollars of diamonds were stolen in the middle of the bush and somehow smuggled to Europe. And dive deep beneath the surface of three crooked cops known as the Rat Pack in Dig. Sirens are coming. Dorothy handed Hallahan the money and when he walked off, the undercovers swooped. The ABC Listen app. Lend me your ears. Download it now from your app store. Farmers are experimenting with all kinds of renewable technology, including some you wouldn't expect and probably never heard of. David Clawton reports on the latest from the recent Renewable Energy Conference in Albury. Dairy farmer Michael Keynes had been thinking about installing renewables to improve the reliability of his power, but he hadn't done anything about it until one very wet and stormy night. The power went out, flooding rains, high winds... Endeavour Energy told us that the, that the uh, power would be out for three days. So head down the hill, grab the 20 kVA generator, rev the crap out of my ute getting up the hill. I'm drenched, my clothes are wet. I stick the generator into the system just as the power comes back on. After that, Michael Keynes installed a solar system and a battery and linked up with other farmers in his area to share power. We chose a system called uh, Redflow Batteries for our batteries. Um, Redflow are Aussie tech. They're recyclable, they're fire resistant, they'll last for decades. They're a bit bulkier, but um, on a, in a farm context, that doesn't really matter. So we've used that along with the peer-to-peer trading system that we've got through Rethink and Momentum Energy. We can use our own solar first, fill up the battery second, trade it between the house and the bar cafe that we've got in the middle of Robertson. And then when we've, when we've got excess energy to that, then we can trade that. We can send it to Rosnay, we can send it to the Pines. The interesting impl- implications for the agricultural sector is that as our group keeps growing, and it is growing, then we stop being a microgrid. We start being a community generator of electricity. Michael Keynes tapped into support from the Department of Primary Industry and a loan from the Rural Assistance Authority. Sheep producer Tom Warren signed a deal with a solar company to install panels on his farm and it's generating an income from the panels and he's getting improved productivity from his sheep as well. It's only under present day terms a fairly small solar farm, 54 hectares roughly, and we're running a small number of sheep on there, 150 merino weathers, but absolutely incredibly effective, um, a great source of off-farm income if you like, um, with the rental for the solar farm, 
but we're still running more weathers now or more sheep per acre. The actual facility, the infrastructure is owned by Newen, which is a French, French company and I cannot speak more highly of them. Um, and we've worked together right through from the start. The whole process started about 11 years ago, believe it or not, and it's been operating now for seven. Um, yeah, it, it, it's been a great, great project. The other thing we hear from people as critics is that it's a bit of a heat trap when you have that many solar panels there, and uh, also they're worried about the, the waste at the end of the day when you have to throw the panels away. Thought about those issues? Absolutely. I would challenge the fact of the heat issue because the sheep uh, during summer are all lined up under the panels getting out of the weather, getting out of the sun, noting that these are sun tracker style which move with um, as the sun goes across the horizon they follow it and they're facing towards the sun all the time with the idea of disposal the lease is 30 years long the company has an option to renew the lease at a newly negotiated lease fee but built into that into the contract they have a sinking fund which requires them to remove all of the infrastructure that's been placed onto the property at the end of that lease if it is not renewed. Winemakers are also getting into solar to power their irrigation pumps. Sam Statham's another one who installed a red flow battery and buried his irrigation pipes to reduce evaporation. The problem with solar irrigation is that, uh, you're, well, it's good because you're pumping when the sun shines and it's hot and that's when the plants need water but that's also when the uh, water will evaporate the most from the sun. So what we did was we've actually put our irrigation uh, dripper tubes under the ground in the middle of the vine row so that uh, if we do pump during the day when the sun shines, um, we're not losing water. And we also do a lot of our other uh, uh, winemaking activities uh, based around the availability of the sun. So for example, uh, we can tailor our cooling systems to work harder during the sun, sunny days and we've got other things like uh, distillation which we can run uh, when the sun shines. Farmer Dominic Murphy is going for some old tech to reduce the massive power bill from his dairy. He's going to use wood chips to generate power, something that's done fairly routinely in Europe. We've partnered with a German company uh, and, and sort of internationally electricity from biomass so whether that's you know manure or wood or whatever it's or straw whatever it's from is much more common than it is here and we're currently in the final stages of commissioning a, a wood-fired generator essentially so we're going to generate 70 percent of our site's demand from wood chips and i guess so it's a wood obviously is a renewable resource in itself but does it does it uh, create carbon emissions at the end no it doesn't create them so uh as trees grow or any biomass grows, it draws down atmospheric carbon, which is stored in the plant. And then as you burn that, yes, you re-release that CO2. But if that product is left sort of out, you know, put out on your lawn or, or an animal dies or whatever it is, that um, CO2 is released anyway. So what we're doing by burning it uh, or, or we're actually turning it into gas and then burning that is we're intercepting that cycle um, and the, the sort of drawdown and release of CO2 is matched because it's a it's a natural sustainable source it's we're not reintroducing fossil fuels. Wood chips are not the only renewable energy resource being used to generate power. Dr Louise Brown from Hygiene Renewables is developing new catalyst technology to produce hydrogen from straw something she says is much more plentiful than you'd think. 
We were contacted last week by a farmer down in the Victorian region who has 200,000 tonnes of straw a year that is burnt. Wow. And that's in a 20-kilometre radius. So that is not a challenge to collect and take to a central facility or even put on the farm. And then even better, he sits next to a port. So if you start putting that together with the conversation from the government about hydrogen and export, it's a massive opportunity to, to start taking that energy out of that straw, converting it into a clean fuel, into clean hydrogen, and then using it either you know, here domestically or is, if there's an opportunity for the export market. And you're not burning it, so you're not sending that smoke into the atmosphere. Well, that's right. So by our technology where we can convert the sugars that sit in that straw, and there's a lot of sugars, which we can't use for food, but with the, the catalyst technology we've developed, we can use that energy. We're not burning it. So if you burnt it, you're putting about nine kilograms of carbon dioxide back into the air for every kilogram of hydrogen. We can reduce that to under half a kilogram. Dr Louise Brown from Hygiene Renewables, ending that report from David Clawton and Michael Condon. There's some exciting stuff happening in the space. When I got the chance to travel to the United States earlier this year, I attended a panel at the Alltech One conference where one of the presenters was talking about the potential of agriculture Voltaics, that solar panels integrated into farming systems, and their potential to reduce some of the tension they're having around the loss of farmland to residential and commercial projects. And another presenter was talking about the potential of anaerobic digestion systems to produce biogas from livestock operations in Europe, where I'm sure, as you know, they are very worried about gas at the moment. Well, from town kid to rouseabout to shearer to self-taught photographer making a name for himself across rural Australia, it's been a wild ride for James Brazel. The 27-year-old now travels the country, capturing the action in shearing sheds and at rural weddings and everything in between. He told his story to reporter Angus Burley. Bit of a uh, funny story because I never grew up on a farm or really had no agricultural connection at all growing up, but... I always had a lot of friends that were involved in farming um, and when I was in my later years at high school I had friends that were um, doing a bit of rouseabouting uh, for a shearing contractor so I more or less just rang up the uh, shearing contractor and they gave me a job at the end of year 12 working in the sheds as a rouseabout um, and then into my in my early years uh, as a rousey I just bought a camera and started taking it to work with me taking photos of the shearing sheds and the farms I was working at uh, and then as the years grew on i kept the photography business going my social media sort of grew and then I started doing wedding photography and the families and the couples photography and uh, now I'm sort of at the point where I can nearly do the photography full time and phase the shearing out but still love the shearing still love being in the sheds and um, hopefully I always keep my foot in the door if that does happen yeah so self-taught photography yeah yeah I um, just make it up as I go <laughs> I swear I don't even know what half the functions on my camera still do <laughs> but yeah I just um, never done a course or anything I just taught myself and um, just play around with the camera and, and with all the Photoshop and all the programs like that and just, yeah, I'll just make it up as I go. <laughs> yeah, so talk me through, you're doing a lot of shearing shed related photography, so how does that come about? Is that contractors wanting to maybe have some images to promote themselves? Well, what sort of work are you doing? Yeah, so 90% of the photos I've taken uh, probably up to this point uh, in my photography career has purely vain from the shearing sheds I've been working at. If I've been shearing at the property, I just take my camera with me every day um, and I, I just do um, photos at lunch, um, at Smoko, um, whenever I get a chance to pull the camera out during the day. Um, but I'm getting a lot of inquiries now from shearing contractors who just want photos um, of their teams in action because it's pretty rare you can get photos of your team um, 
well, yeah, it's working. <laughs> so I'm getting a lot of inquiries now from shearing contractors who just want photos of their team working, wherever that might be. I'm going to Bulligal um, this week. Um, I was at Bell Ranald the other week, and I'm yeah, I'm just travelling around, just wherever, wherever people book me if they want photos of their shearing teams in action. Yeah, I'll just go wherever the, wherever I'm wanted. And you've got some pictures here behind you um, from shearing sheds, sort of blown up and framed. Uh, featuring some really sort of classic historical sheds. Are they your favourite ones to, to photograph? Yeah, yeah, I definitely like the older sheds. Um, they've definitely got more character, unfortunately, than the, the newer sheds. That, uh, the, although the, shed, the newer sheds are definitely better to work in from a shearing point of view, the older sheds are definitely better from a photography point of view. This photo I've got framed up here um, is Toggin Main Wool Shed. That was one of Australia's biggest ever working shearing sheds. That, that's up in the River Rainer, not far from Hay. Um, probably one of my favourite sheds I've probably photographed, I would say. Um, but yeah, I love the older sheds. Um, the older, the better. They've all got a lot of uh, lot of character and a lot of stories that come out of those sheds. So yeah, I always like visiting them older sheds. And I suppose photographing shearing that is still happening in some of those older sheds probably an important historical record because those sheds are progressively being being replaced and modernised. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, like that that Togan main shed, they've been trying to save that uh, for the last few years now. It's no longer in use, hasn't been used for quite a few years now, but um, it's a lot of history has come out of that shed. But yeah, they, they are they are getting modernised a lot of the sheds, which has to be done because they, they you know they're still getting used from so from a shearing point of view they've, they've got to be updated and they've got to be um they've got to be maintained but um yeah purely from a photography point of view though like the older sheds are with, with the old shaft gear and that which is definitely not good from a shearing point of view once again like the old overhead gear and that but from a photography point of view they do always look better in the photos the older sheds and obviously shearing it's a pretty dynamic workplace there's a lot happening people are on the go all the time there's wool moving sheep moving people moving is that tough as a photographer to try and capture that action I suppose it's a bit like sports photography, which I haven't done any of, <laughs> but it is um, very much the same sort of principle, I suppose. Uh, people are moving around, it's quick, you've got to be um, try and get out of everyone's way, um, which I suppose helps when you've got a bit of a shearing background to know how the sheds operate, where people are going to be when people are dragging sheep out to their stand and uh, things like that. So you do have to um, keep a quick eye on what's happening so you don't get in the way when you're taking photos, but... Um, it's good. Like there's always plenty of things to take photos of. Um, you know, there's always something happening. People pinning up sheep. People throwing fleeces. People, um, you know, running run long blows on when they're shearing, and they're always great photos to get. So um, there's always things to take photos of, and you just, you know, you can spend an hour in, in a shed and get a hundred photos. You know, that are, are, are great. So yeah, you just, um, yeah, there's no shortage of uh, things to photograph when you when you're in a wool shed. And that photo of, of the, the fleece being thrown, capturing it mid-air, that, that's really a sort of classic cheering shed shot, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's iconic. I think everyone who's ever had a photo, uh, a, sorry, a camera in a shearing shed has always tried to get that photo. Um, you've, you've, <laughs> you can stand there all day and, and, and you know, just get photo after photo of that, and it, you know, it's, it's timeless. Everyone loves the, uh, the throwing the fleece photo. That was shearer turned photographer James Brazel speaking with Angus Verley. Shearing sheds are really one of my favourite places to film for the stories I do for Landline and the business. There's so much action and so many characters, so I can understand where James's passion comes from. I just wish I had a little bit of his talent. My name's Clint Jasper, and Country Breakfast was brought to the table this week by Serena Locke, Kath McAloon and Matthew Sigley. Your breakfast offerings aren't limited to the Country Brekkie plate, so stick around for the offerings from the rest of the talented radio chefs here at RM. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.